0: When people carry these burdens, it causes insomnia, it causes alcoholism, it causes so
1: many issues that people... Maintaining a lie, particularly I'd say lying to yourself, is probably a very damaging thing to do. Even the Mm -hmm. points of view of a bully,
0: even the points of view of someone who just doesn't think things through, the people pleaser tries to account for and accommodate... Welcome to How to Be an Adult. This is a podcast for people just like you who've inadvertently become adults and have no
1: idea what to do about it. I'm Luke Chow. And I'm Pascal Langdale. And this is the trail guide to everything your parents didn't tell you when you reached the age of 18. And we spread these thoughts and these uh, perspectives in order to democratize them so that you can have a good life as an adult. Today, we're going to
0: talk about Capital T truth, capital M morality, and capital B beauty as valid concepts in this 21st century and not just concepts for the Victorians. Why don't we just start off with the, the big T word? Sure. Well, so ever since the other big T, Donald Trump, was elected to the White House, Mm -hmm. there's been extra chatter in the um, public sphere about how we're in this post-truth universe where narrative is everything and truth doesn't matter so much. It's really just what you get away with. Mm. And then we can also look from the perspective of, let's say, lawyers, who have to advise their clients to tell the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth when they, you know, make the oath on the stand? We can look at the perspective of engineers mm-hmm. who have to design bridges and Wi-Fi networks that actually work in the material universe. So, so certainly, there are multiple perspectives that would advocate for this concept of objective or, or capital. T truth, even if the the very same people would admit that it can be quite an
1: ordeal to arrive at objective or capital T truth. I've been watching a couple of things that have struck me. There was um, uh, one TEDx talk that I caught of somebody who advocates for the idea that everything is a story. So the idea America isn't real, it's a story that we all agree, also that human rights don't exist it's not an objective truth that we mm-hmm. have and he said you know if you if you cut open a human there's <laughs> nothing inside which actually I disagree with there's quite a lot inside but there's yep. n- this this incredibly reductionist almost nihilistic i would say point of view go it sort of ties in as well with another trend with which uh, a friend of mine had a name for which i didn't realize it had a name it was called emotivism so basically it's the idea that if for instance i say I think that fraud is bad, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that there's nothing good or bad about that. A fraud in itself, it's only my opinion that it's bad. It's my perspective. And you might hold a perspective that is um, that actually fraud is good. Mm-hmm. And that n- we both have invalid points of view because they, there is no objective truth. Mm-hmm. There's only yeah. our opinions and our morality yeah. um, that we carry around with us. But that's problematic because, as you say, if I... If you say this is 10 centimeters and I say it's 11 because I feel it's so, and that Mm -hmm. feels right, then the the Mars rover won't run. Well, a few hundred years ago, David Hume,
0: the Scottish philosopher, identified a distinction between what is and what ought to be. Mm -hmm. And he said famously that you cannot derive an ought from an is (laughs) in other words the realm of morality the realm of what should be like human rights for example Mm -hmm. is a separate domain Mm -hmm. from what is like if you cut apart a human body for example it's true you're not going to find the human rights in a person's you know physical heart or or lungs or, or brain but that's because you're looking in the wrong place. You have mm-hmm. to look in the realm of a separate domain called morality or ethics mm-hmm. to find human rights. You can't just look in the material world made of atoms and molecules. Right. So let's account for the fact that there's sort of this moral realm, mm-hmm. which we're going to talk about yeah, later yeah. in the episode. And then there's also the, the, this material realm made of atoms and molecules mm-hmm. where we do have things like bridges that can stay standing.
1: That sort of also lends itself to the idea of science as well in the sense that – objective truth could be perhaps summarized as, if I see that and you see that, and we can all agree that we're seeing it and we describe it in the same way, then we can Mm -hmm. say this is the closest thing we can get to at this point for objective truth. But the scientific process is falsification, right? So Mm -hmm. this is where people somehow get in trouble by saying the science, like Mm -hmm. it was a a thing, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, rather than a process. But science is a process of reassessing objective truth but with a certain amount of rigor behind Mm -hmm. it rather than because I feel it so.
0: And even scientists will acknowledge that sometimes their best hypotheses today mm-hmm. are likely to, to be falsified at some point
1: decades yeah. in the future. And, and, su- and subject to their own bias as well. That's y- so, y- yes. You know,
0: truth is a tricky thing to, to, to isolate. But, but the difference between such a scientist and, and the friend you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. is the friend is not even trying to, <laughs> to arrive at some yeah. semblance of, of an understanding of objective reality. Yeah. The scientist at least is trying to arrive at some semblance of understanding about objective reality. Mm,
1: And that's interesting. It's only odd when you say that, I also kind of go well that's almost similar to a spiritual endeavor as well.
0: I guess most difficult enough endeavors. Mm-hmm. So whether to develop one spiritually or whether to kind of formulate a model of tr- reality that mm-hmm. predicts what could happen in the future. Any of these difficult endeavors, they're, they're going to be worth doing even if it takes a long time, even a lifetime, even multiple lifetimes. So so what, what definition of truth are we going to work by? Because, I mean... Well, maybe <laughs> I'll borrow from Philip K. Dick. And he, he actually define reality as this. That which does not go away when you stop believing in it. So, so, So the Mack truck that's bearing down on you, it's not going away if you stop believing in it. So let's say that Mack truck exists in reality, and you'd better get out of its way because it's not just a figment of your imagination. But then something like you're imagining that the next flight you take is going to go up in flames. If that never manifests before your eyes, when you stop believing in it, that imagining goes away. The imagining, in other words, is is not actually the truth.
1: So that's interesting because going into the idea of well, what is truth for? Because you mm-hmm. could say, well, okay, well, what use is it? Because I could live in my own fantasy world. Mm-hmm. I could choose yeah. to to believe anything, and it might not do me any good, but I'd be happy as I. As things went wrong. Well, yeah, and th- 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 that is, I would argue,
0: m- more, more of like the child's perspective. Right. Where, you know, one could be protected from dangers or protected from scarcity, despite living in a fantasy play world. Mm-hmm. By the time we have to fend for ourselves. So metaphorically, by the time we're driving our own cars, we'd better have our eyes on the road. Mm -hmm. So I'll extend this metaphor. When we're driving a car, right, we can't navigate the roads with only what we imagine might be ahead of us nor can we navigate the roads that we've taken a hundred times with only our memory of what was on the roads the Mm -hmm. past hundred times. We can only navigate the roads with our eyes, with our ears, and then with our hands. If with our eyes we can't see what's over the next hill, for example, we just kind of keep driving and then we reach the crest of the hill, and then we can see with our eyes, oh, that's what's over the hill, and then we keep navigating accordingly and, and thereby complete every journey that we begin. So this is very much an argument in support of empiricism Mm -hmm. uh, above just pure reason in that the evidence of our senses, though imperfect, will give us the best representation of reality th- that we could then use to navigate by th- that a person could have mm-hmm. so often we kind of go to conjecture you know like is this person going to call me back we kind of like imagine stuff but but the future you is going to actually be perceptive and intelligent enough mm-hmm. to have information and then you know make decisions with information which absolves you from any need to make decisions without information
1: so f- so flipping it around then saying that lying or lying to yourself or deceiving yourself Mm -hmm. you could say well at least you can start off by not doing that because it's it's rather easy right it's it's actually quite easy to kid yourself or even other people for that matter there's a, a study which i can share with you i think it's in the notes that showed that having successful small lies leads to more lies because the social cost of being found out in a lie is close to death Right. It's like there's death and then there's social shame. Those are the two biggest things that the human old brain is kind of afraid of. Right. But apparently if you if you put a scenario, well, small lies are swallowed, then the lies get bigger and bigger because you can get away with it. The self censorship begins to disappear. So actually, in some ways, you have to be your own best monitor, because even (laughs) when you're telling things to yourself, you could be kidding yourself, and it's and you kid yourself to start off with. That can snowball into really going into territory where your perception of the truth about your imaginings, for example, is entirely wrong. Often,
0: what we imagine in our heads, and I'm gonna say like all lies are basically like imagined thoughts. Right? Yeah. So what we imagine, it ends up obscuring our view of what's in front of us. So if you tell yourself that your tires can handle that patch of black ice, but you've not changed your tires for the wintertime,
1: mm-hmm. you're lying to yourself, mm-hmm. and then you screw around and you find out. Yeah, but, but if, if nothing happens, you might go, oh, well, okay, that calibrated my, my truth, I'm okay. You know, the, the more that your, your lies are swallowed and accepted and you get away with them, the worse your calibration can, be- can become. Does that make sense? I, I guess so. I'm kind of
0: imagining that, that maybe some of our raiders have you know, got themselves caught in this pattern of mm-hmm. like, telling little white lies to make other people happy mm-hmm. or to not rock the boat. Or and- even telling lies to themselves in order to fill some kind of emotional hole. So let's imagine that we kind of have listeners who have these kinds of fantasies obscuring their view of the truth, Mm -hmm. right? So they think they're a better driver than they are, Mm -hmm. um, so they'll take like tighter turns than they ought to, or Mm -hmm. they're going to drive on the black ice even though they've not changed their tires to winter tires yet. In such a situation, could we say it's inevitable that a bad thing's going to then follow? (laughs) Could we say that? It's likely. Okay. Okay. OK, so not inevitable, mm-hmm. but it, it's likely on a long enough timeline yeah. <laughs> that if you, you know, if you overestimate your driving ability, mm-hmm. th- that you're probably going to get into some kind of you know, one-person accident, one-car accident. If you tell like, white lies to, to, to your friends, eventually you're going to suffer that social
1: shame you mm-hmm. alluded to of being called out as untrustworthy. Mm-hmm. And, and I think the same thing happens internally as well. So you could have somebody you know, who tells himself, I am a bad driver, and repeats that and it may not be, you know, let's say it's mm-hmm. not true. Yeah. They're neither good nor bad. They're, they're just a driver, let's say. Yeah. But I'm a bad driver, and then you believe that. And then the repercussion is that you don't drive, so you feel safe, but it also mm. justifies and reinforces the idea that you're a bad driver because you don't drive, and so on. Well,
0: one, one thing I often end up saying to my clients is that when, when you put in a really good effort to ascertain the truth about a situation, That most likely you're gonna be better off afterward. Mm. So, when one is like self deceptive, you know, to to like pump themselves up or or to feel okay about themselves, they are neglecting their best qualities. So, they're making up fake qualities to feel good about at the same time that they're neglecting their better qualities where they can still feel good but also have their feet on the ground. Or if someone is overestimating their driving ability, let's say that they're neglecting the fact that they could just like take some extra driving lessons to have the false idea that that they can handle it. So like maybe their vision is failing, you know, they're neglecting going to the
1: optometrist, Mm -hmm. you know, in favor for for, for the lie. So there was uh, another study that also showed that maintaining a lie has really bad outcomes as far as your health is concerned it can reduce health you know, It's the classic it'll reduce your life by 10 years so so the bad outcomes were things like you know hyper you know uh, high stress levels heart disease i think diabetes was mentioned as well and it's the theory goes that it takes a cognitive load to maintain a lie hmm. that cognitive load increases stress and the stress causes the issues and then so that then plays into the idea well why is it a cognitive load what's so important about maintaining a lie and cuz so, when you're a kid you grow up you kind of have to learn about lying you know mm-hmm. and, and kids learn about lying pretty early on as mm-hmm. well yeah. and so what's so there's got to be something that you you learn that is about the social damage that's possible with the lie and that creates this sort of this mental overload that creates the stress so, generally speaking, it's not just that truth is a good thing, I suppose, is that uh, maintaining a lie, particularly I'd say lying to yourself, mm-hmm. is probably a very damaging thing to do. Yeah. Well, I'll share with you
0: that when I think back to me in elementary school, mm-hmm. right? I can think of a few incidents where I kind of like experimented with lying. And it was very clear to me in elementary school that the adults around me could just plainly see through Mm -hmm. whatever it is I was telling my fib about and I just couldn't get away with it and that I could only gain their respect Mm -hmm. by being truthful and, you know, if I have to own up to something Mm -hmm. or apologize for something that I own up to and apologize. And that's how you kind of have the trust and the respect of of the adults around you. Um, so that's kind of what I learned about lying when I was experimenting with lying yeah. as a kid. I don't know if everyone has had the, that experience, but I imagine if if my experience had been that life is grand when I tell lies, <laughs> m- yeah. m- maybe th- then today I wouldn't have as much of a positive regard yeah. for speaking truthfully and candidly and, and honestly. Well, it's, it's the downside of lying where enough of the adults around you care about truth and being respected enough that you tell the truth to them Mm. That you end up losing friends over lies. You end up losing jobs Mm -hmm. over lies. You end up losing, you know relationships over lies because it's, you know, once trust is broken. Yeah It's very hard to regain because people see you as someone that they can never just quite believe in and Mm. you know That adds extra stress in their minds when they're speaking
1: to you. Mm. So in the idea that, you know, you didn't get your eyes checked and then because of that you ran somebody over or something terrible happens, yeah. right? So then the question moves on to the other big topic, which is morality. Mm. And as we've already discussed, you know, well, somebody saying it's good to get your eyes checked if you drive a car. And an a motivist mm-hmm. might say that's your opinion. That's not a, that's not a truth, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so how do we derive our morals? Where do we get them from? How do we know that they're useful or good? In the
0: context of driving, mm-hmm. we could sort of identify a duty to your fellow drivers on the road or even pedestrians on the sidewalk to make sure that you are a competent driver. So if you were to somehow lose your competence to drive, such as if you lose your eyesight, if you're taking you know medications that make you drowsy, um, if your car is so much in disrepair that it's a hazard, well, then your duty to your fellow citizens of the road or even pedestrians crossing the road will be to get yourself back up in, 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 into uh,
1: competent shape mm-hmm. in, in order before to, you drive. So in order to not hurt people and not kill people. Exactly. So it comes comes back to the idea of, again, a pro-social idea. Yes. Morality being based in something that's pro-social. Exactly.
0: Because you're not the only driver on the road. Mm -hmm. To your point, we we, we keep seeming to arrive at this definition that a universal human kind of morality, if Mm -hmm. we're going to be like, you know, not absolutist, but Mm -hmm. if we're going to be... um, definitive about things, um, it's going to be behaviors that are pro-social, behaviors that are good for your friends, for your neighbors, for your family, and not only for yourself. It happens that when you are good to your friends and your neighbors and your family and your co-workers, that it ends up coming back to you in a positive way, so it's mm-hmm. good for you too. But it, it seems like if we're going to try to define a universal morality, it's going to be to act in ways that foster community and you know good trusting social relationships
1: and i suppose this also does relate to truth as well because you can't do that effectively unless you're on guard against lies external lies or internal lies because mm-hmm. you could kid yourself that i don't know forcing everybody in the office to shave their head is a social good you could or whatever it is i'm picking something yeah. ludicrous right and who's to say no you know, mm-hmm. you know I could say well it's pro-social um but is it true and so that's where Morality and truth do have a relationship is that you, you can judge a moral to some degree Surely by the degree of truth that supports the moral Because otherwise I don't know because otherwise you could anybody could say like you could say uh, I'm sure the Nazis in in Germany thought that their final solution was pro-social in their terms as horrifying mm-hmm. as that is and that That to me the roots of that is self-deception Right. Well, you
0: could also argue in this uh, 21st century Mm -hmm. that, um, you know, because we kind of draw a boundary around humanity and we don't really like include cattle and um, geese and Mm -hmm. goats and chickens and other poultry, that we're delirious in our duty to the fellow species on the planet, Mm -hmm. even if we are fulfilling our duty to our fellow human beings. So there is sort of this, this culturally determined or socially determined aspect to morality, mm-hmm. even though it might be uncomfortable to kind of examine you and see your own flaws, right, or emotions or whatever else is in there, like behind the scenes. Mm-hmm. It is also something that I wish to normalize mm-hmm. for for one to kind of look look inwardly and see one's flaws and emotions and all of one's humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So we, we've defined morality as pro social, and mm-hmm. just so I'm not a hypocrite, I am excluding the animals. Right, yes. Unfortunately. Fair enough, yeah. Oh, a, a, except for the cute ones. Like right. cat cats and dogs, I count <laughs> among, you know, social species I, I socialize c- with. Some people don't, though. Yeah, and l- like even horses, I, I include among, like, social species mm-hmm. who I might socialize with. But that's because I've never eaten horse before. I
1: have. Oh, okay. And so, I've, I've ridden horses as well. Yes, yeah, so. so oh, yeah, I'm a true hypocrite in that. Point well, a at horror. least. Conflicted. (laughs) I see it as being a part of being of my version of a human being at the moment.
0: Well, yeah, I mean, like I I participated in jet travel recently, even Mm -hmm. though I am aware that we had a very, very hot year last year. Mm -hmm. And I contributed to that for this this season. This is struggle session. Well, I mean, <laughs> it, it's it, it, it's an. W- we're talking about morality, so
1: yes. Moral, yeah, we yeah. We're,
0: we're talking about yeah, we're talking about morality. One way to bring all of this self-flagellation to a point <laughs> is is to say. These kinds of thoughts and these kinds of discussions, where we are talking about capital M morality, are worth having, even if the participants in the conversation start getting uncomfortable because we realize our failings. We realize our moral failings, you know, because I ate meat and I flew in a jet airplane and I try to be a climate conscious person at the same time. And h- how do I reconcile all of this? The only way to end up eventually at an old enough age coming to a reconciliation Mm -hmm. is if we have these thoughts and this kind of introspection Mm -hmm. and then these kinds of conversations where I actually believe that at some point I'm going to stop eating meat and Mm -hmm. stop doing jet travel.
1: Mm. There's also an argument that says that the pro-social cause still needs to have uh, some kind of backing. And so therefore you go, and then that's when you go back to the idea of, you know, uh, God is dead, so now we have to make him is that one one role that, re- that religion does have and certainly did have more in the past was a, a foundation of these things are true because they're ordained by something or, you know, some other spiritual thing. Humans didn't make this up, mm-hmm. right? So it delegates it to somebody else that you can't really argue with, mm. right? So if you take that away, then... You are in a situation where you do have to figure out your own moral touchstones, and that's that's actually no small thing. I actually think that if you are somebody who says they don't believe in God, for example, well, how do you know what's right and wrong? Often it's, a, it's it can be a problematic question because they go, "Well, I decide," and I said, "Well, okay, what well, if I decide differently? What does that mean?" <laughs> and everything becomes relative, and you're in, suddenly you're in trouble. You know, <laughs> so it's, it's really important to figure out the foundation of your. Moral underpinning whether it's religion or not is neither here nor there, but you've got to have something I mm-hmm. think that's probably well, well, what it comes down to where do you think it would come from if not from organized religion again? the idea of reciprocal Benefit I suppose okay, so so
0: from from reason
1: and Possibly, to some yeah. degree
0: enlightened self-interest.
1: Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah to some degree Yeah, so okay. but it's yeah that's that's a good start, I'd say. Yeah. <laughs> i say. Well, I say, it's not easy. Yeah, yeah. well,
0: there the, the definitely is, you know, even in the absence of formal or organized religion, th- there is sort of, like, th- these socially um, enforced norms mm. where, like, if someone finds out that all the art in your home is stolen um, f- f- from a country that, like, your grandfather invaded mm-hmm. and you tell proud stories about the war... Right. right. <laughs> like, I just made up that, that you know, yeah. in that made up scenario, you're going to get social heat. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might not have broken any laws, mm-hmm. but you're going to definitely get social heat b- b- because you're speaking so flagrantly about these stolen artifacts. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think that even in the absence of religion or you know, even laws mandating certain behaviors, there are going to be social pressures that prevent people from acting in certain ways or doing certain things, and there's going to be also social incentives for, for you to make a big show out of mm-hmm. donating the artifacts back to the country that your grandfather stole them from.
1: Actually, I do know uh, somebody, uh, a friend of mine called John Dower, who's a, a director in the UK, and he uh, comes from a rich family. Well, originally uh, that uh, significantly benefited from the slave trade, and so he and his family got together. And funded an institution in the country where those uh, slaves were taken from and were used in order to redress the effects of slavery that were still manifesting there. Yeah, and I think that's when I see a direct line like that, it seems mm-hmm. pretty clear. When it's a direct yeah. line, I mean, when it's more indirect, I find it more problematic. But yeah. that I could I could see the logic behind that. Yeah, well,
0: in some cases, you know, having extra wealth is not the main point. Being able to be happy with yourself, mm-hmm. feeling like you're a decent person at the end of your day or at the end of your life is a bigger point than you know, dying with the most toys. Mm-hmm. As a hypnotherapist, I, I often see that the, the anxiety, um, sometimes even the depression that my clients present with and, and believe they have are actually problems of demoralization. And once I help them to find their moral center, once I help them to, to feel that their sense of right and wrong counts, once I help them to be able to say, no, I can't abide by that, but let's do it this other way instead. Once they're able to say that, then they're not so anxious, then they feel a lot better about themselves, then they sleep better at night and they don't have to like drink as much or smoke mm. cigarettes. This I don't hear talked about that much, where we are kind of treating like anxiety as a mental illness and not as a problem of demoralization. In fact, it's considered to be an outdated Victorian thing <laughs> to consider mental illness to be a moral issue. Mm-hmm. But I'm actually going to, you know, in 2024, make a case here th- that many of the problems that a hypnotherapist might see are problems that are solved by having the client connect with their moral center. So people-pleasing, people who won't set boundaries, people who are are afraid to feel or to express anger in a healthy way. These are problems of being out of touch with your moral center. Once you get in touch with your sense of right and wrong and good and bad, and you feel that that you're an adult and you're an equal to the, the person who's wronged you, then there's so many burdens you unshoulder, mm. right? When people carry these burdens, it causes insomnia, it causes alcoholism, it causes so many issues that people come to a hypnotherapist for. Um, I mean, I'm not saying in every case, but in, in, the, in the cases specifically that mm-hmm. I'm thinking about and, and talking about. And I, I think that, f- for example, when one is a people pleaser, he or she feels the need to consider every point of view as valid, mm-hmm. right? Even the, the the points of view of some jerk, even mm-hmm. the points of view of a bully, even the points of view of someone who just does, doesn't think things through. The people pleaser tries to account for and accommodate all of these views. Um, so when I have such a person tap into their moral center and Develop a strong sense of right and wrong and good and bad and the willingness just to say well no, hold on, I I can't abide by that then it's not just that they're no longer people pleasing it's not just that they're setting and enforcing boundaries, it's that a lot of the the other problems which is often what they present
1: with go away. Is there also to again tie back morals with truth, is that the people pleaser uh, or somebody who's very high in agreeability is, in essence, kind of lying to themselves that every opinion is of equal merit or lying yeah. to themselves that their own opinion has equal or less merit than somebody else's. It's,
0: it's usually that everyone's opinion counts except for theirs, everyone's needs count except for theirs, everyone else counts except for them. The The, the lie is the erasure of them as yeah. a person. So so yeah, I mean the 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 truth thing was basically Mm -hmm. I'm saying Epistemology matters sound epistemology Mm -hmm. makes happier more even-keeled clear-headed people Mm -hmm. now We're saying morality matters because being connected with your moral center Mm -hmm. Allows for also happier more even-keeled level-headed people that's actually been true in, in my practice as a hypnotherapist so Earlier today, I I talked about um, when I was a kid. I kind of like experimented with lying, right? Mm -hmm. What would happen? I was kind of a brat back then, but that's not just a lesson about why truth matters It's also a lesson about why morality matters. So it's not just like the content of what I'm saying It's also, you know, the fact that I've chosen to lie or tell the truth to to begin with um, that that matters so the, the the judgment that I, I would get, um, it, it's not just that the the teacher thought I was mistaken. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't have hurt as much. It's that that teacher who I trusted now th- thinks truthfully that I lied to them, and that cuts a lot more deeply. So we'll use the the, the same story about me being like grade three experimenting with lying. Mm-hmm. You know, to, to make the point not just about why telling the, the truth matters, but also, you know, the, the the moral argument for doing the right thing. So so if people judge you as just ignorant, I mean, that kind of hurts, but it's not going to hurt as much as if they judge you and truthfully to be a liar, to be untrustworthy.
1: I think the roots of a lot of negligent lying or um, instantaneous lying, both to yourself and to, to others, is normally derived from fear. Some, it can be even a small fear. Uh, you know that yeah. thing when somebody says, oh, did you watch so-and-so, that, that film? I don't know if anybody else has done this. But but I, can, I know that I've gone, oh, yeah, like I saw the film. I didn't see the film. But in that instant, yeah. there's like this thing that sort of goes, oh, well, you you better uh, show that you know the movie. Yeah. It's like, silly. Why, why do that? Right. Well, but then again, it, with kids as well, you see this all the time, that the, 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 the fear of telling the truth mm-hmm. will define whether they tell the truth or not. And if they are allowed to... Admit their vulnerability. They're wrong there, um, and they—they're in a safe place. They will come clean. Most people, not everyone, but
0: most people have a conscience. Mm. So even if you quote get away with the lie, mm. in your own head you didn't really. Yeah, So and that's, that's going to play on. That's probably going to play on you. So that's. And that's what causes insomnia. That's mm-hmm. what can cause alcoholism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, often. When people present with anxiety, there is an element of a guilty conscience in there somewhere. Mm. Now, that doesn't mean they've done anything wrong, but usually there is some element that they could be a bad person. Yeah. So let's round out the trifecta of branches of philosophy that we're going to advocate for here in 2024. We've advocated for epistemology. We've advocated for morality. Now we're going to advocate for aesthetics, Uh for beauty, because there's, let's be honest, a lot of really ugly architecture in Toronto. There really is. And I'm not a fan of brutalism. Right, Robarts Library mm-hmm. at U of T looks like a giant turkey, wow. and it was novel at first, but you know it's it's a big, ugly concrete sculpture—or not not sculpture—it's a it, it's a building. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it 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 it's not pretty to look at.
1: I do have theories about that, which we'll okay, get. Please. We'll, we'll, we'll get. Please, to you're okay, okay, you want it? Okay, I'll give it to you. So, okay, okay. so this is Pascal's grand idea about beauty. Are All you right, ready? Okay. okay. So, the Greeks. Uh, and particularly Plato uh, saw beauty as kalos or kalos. I think that's mm-hmm. the right, right way to say it. Yeah. And this could be translated also as something that's not just beautiful, but noble, as truthful as well to some degree as well. So in English, it's sort of transferred to, uh, often translated as fine, like mm-hmm. fine dining. And I was thinking this, I think, well, what is what is that exactly? And I was thinking, well, I was thinking that really that the beauty in nature, beauty in art, beauty and politics, or whatever it is, is this, to me, it's like the balance between chaos and order, mm-hmm. right? So if you have a string in an instrument, you have two points where they're anchored, that's the constraint, mm-hmm. and then you pluck the string, and it vibrates, and it creates a sound, and the oscillation is is actually quite even, right? So it's it's, it's balanced, mm. and balanced over time, and to me, that's like a that tautness, if you like is the definition of what makes something beautiful because if you think of those uh, poems, pieces of music, uh, stories, or whatever it is that persist over time, they do tend to show this balance between chaos and the constraints and the order put together in a good way. Now, that doesn't mean that it can't be messed around with, and that's where we come to your library, right? So, there is also merit, and this is what the artist does: mm-hmm. to is to create discordance, mm-hmm. right? So, something that's, uh, you know, uh, an Elgar piece that's very discordant, for example, some modern music, you you might hear the discordance go. Well, that's ugly. Well, if your touchstone is that there should be a balance between chaos and order, then sure, you might call it ugly. But the artist might turn around and say, "Yes, but there's what what I'm doing is that in doing this, I'm." revealing something that resonates with uh, my audience, a, a discordance, a a feeling, a sensation. And that in itself is, that's the purpose of art, if you like, is to create that relationship. But that means that those that fall away from this ideal are necessarily culture bound, because <laughs> what's discordant to one culture won't be to another, what speaks to one culture won't be the same as to another. So although the, if you like, the ideal of beauty might be this balance between chaos an order Um, So you have an idea of your your brain. It's perfect. Your pen is the mediation you write It becomes manifest and it becomes flawed, Mm -hmm. right? That's the process of art in that Translation, it's the wrangling between the idea and the reality Mm -hmm. the the freedom and the constraint Mm -hmm. That that's where the beauty comes from because if you think of as I say if you think of those things that persist you're talking about uh, architecture for example well Uh, If you think of the cathedrals and the mosques that were built three, four hundred, even eight, nine hundred years ago, that the aesthetic, if you like, was trying to do that. It was trying to encompass the firmament. It was trying to encompass something that was chaotic and completely open and to constrain it into something that we could understand. That's why there's these big vaulted buildings, because you look up and you're filled with awe right mm-hmm. and it's because the sky contained freedom constraint mm-hmm. right and but these these were endeavors that were this is important were also designed to persist over generations they took 300 years to build took 500 years to build right so it's a multi-generational effort in pursuit of creating something beautiful and even if you take away the religion side of it to mm-hmm. me that's an extraordinary endeavor and <laughs> actually if you think of the If you compare your library to a cathedral, you could Mm -hmm. say, well, the the culture-bound discordant artifacts, we'll see whether those last as long, Mm. because if they don't, then I'll be proved right. But I won't be around to figure it out, whether that library is still going to be there in another 100 or 200 years' time. Well, the the reason I'm picking on on (laughs) architects specifically (laughs) is that
0: I have to look at it. Right. right. So like the art I have hanging on my walls in my office and in, in, in my home, I've chosen it. So I don't have to look at it. I chose to look at it and I chose what I want to look at, right? But when I walk down the sidewalk in Toronto, I am subject to the architectural decisions made by others. Mm-hmm. So, th- I think architects, and you know, if you're an architect and you don't <laughs> like what I'm saying, just leave a comment in the comment <laughs> section, or send us an email with your hate mail. The things that we see and hear around us are going to affect our mood, mm-hmm. right? So we have to kind of construct buildings to live and work in, or to, you know, buildings that function as hospitals and schools. And since they're going to be there anyway. I am advocating for the extra effort put into something that's as universally beautiful or pleasing or mood lifting or spiritually elevating as possible, since we got to look at it anyway, Mm -hmm. right? It's different from like personal fashion where, you know, not that many people really look at the clothes I wear. Mm -hmm. It's different from painting and sculpture where it's going to maybe be in a private office or a private home. Um, public architecture, I'm including like landscape architecture here. You know, it's something that we're going to kind of have to look at over and over again en masse. Mm-hmm. And that's that's why I'm picking on, on the architects. You know, I would say that if someone's going to make a painting, then they're elevating themselves, and then the person who's eventually going to exhibit the painting and, and own the painting, when they, they, they put care and effort into making it beautiful we could veer into a whole discussion about you know modern art and whether it
1: truly is just what you can get away with see I, I I kind of disagree with that, although. Yeah. Just what you can get away with you could also say it's the balance between chaos and order you're still coming back to trying to find a balance between the two what you can get away
0: yeah. with. so, so um, Marcel Deschamps um toilet yeah. and, and 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 Tracy M Emin, Emin, bed, Emin's yeah. be- mm-hmm. bed um, is it like my unmade bed or yeah. Is it, yeah. yeah she was like she, yeah.
1: she was uh, she'd had a, a mental crisis and and had basically lived in her bed for like three months or something and then she well, th- that
0: makes just, a better story it, yeah, it yeah. makes a better story than I, if it's I, just I don't think like, it was bad, yeah. I, uh, okay. I saw it, yeah. Yeah. Well, well. so that, I know it was exhibited in a gallery, but as someone who does buy art, there's not a chance I'm going to buy someone else's bed, dirty sheets, condom
1: wrappers, and then put it in my living room. Sure, but I, I suppose I can see again the chaos order thing. The chaos was her life. The order is putting it into a, a gallery and having it scrutinized. So it's, there's, there's, there's something there. Whether it's beautiful or not, that's a, that's a, another question. So if you go okay. to the Greek idea of beauty, yeah. uh, which is callous, which is noble, which is a sort of fundamental, you might say, well, what are those things that persist over hundreds of years mm-hmm. that we still kind of go, oh, yeah. Like mountains, for example, they're eternally mm-hmm. can be yeah. considered. They fill you with awe. That's how people don't yeah. like that. Fine. But mountains are the creation as a, they are created as a result of chaos upon order. Hmm. So the idea of there being an ideal of beauty would be that there is a, a, a perfect balance between chaos and order. Mm-hmm. And that the closer you are to that per- perfection, the more likely you are that it's going to persist over time because it becomes not bound by culture. Yeah. But I don't know if I'm right. Well, I'd I, I, <laughs> I, I, I like to present um, a, a, another stab
0: at a definition. Okay. So, you know, we you know we don't really necessarily have to defend art in this episode. We're just going to kind of defend, like, like beauty, yeah. right? Robert Persig defined quality, capital Q, mm-hmm. quality, as, and I'm going to mangle his words, but it's something along the lines of, that which is done with care Mm -hmm. so that which is done with care necessarily will be a thing of quality Mm -hmm. and if you see something that is of quality then certainly that thing was done or created or painted or built with care Mm. so You know, care is kind of the effort that you put into it, and then the end result is something of quality. And I very much believe in that, at least, you know, for my work as a hypnotherapist, for, you know, anything that I want to kind of put out there to the public where I know that for the, 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 the product or, or the, the experience to be of high quality, much care has to be put into it. Mm-hmm. So I guess my, my criticism of like Marcel Duchamp, for example, mm-hmm. is that is there really that much care in picking a, ur- a urinal off the ground and mm-hmm. scrawling your signature on it? If there's little care that's been placed in it, c- can
1: we really say that it it, it, it has quality or... I, uh, I, I think... In that case, again, this is culture bound, that's discordance, right? So in his time, doing that was revolutionary. And so if there was care, it was him as an artist creating something that was discordant and spoke to the culture. So whether or not it's beautiful is almost secondary. I, I guess so. Okay, so we'll, we'll
0: kind of set aside the, like, what is art argument yeah. to, you know, really focus on the, you know, advocacy for beauty at least as something to strive toward. Absolutely, yes. So beauty is the, an aspiration. The, yes. As an aspiration. Yeah. I think it's because, so I have to get dressed in the morning anyway, right? Mm-hmm and then people are going to look at whatever shirt i put on in the morning. So why would i make someone look at a very ugly christmas sweater in like mid february <laughs> if i could have them look at like a pleasing color and a you know a pleasing pattern Since they're going to look at me anyway, I think it's actually part of my social duty. You're
1: being pro-social again. I am being (laughs) pro-social
0: in taking into consideration the emotional impact that my aesthetic choices have on others. Just like, you know, how I decided to set up the set for Mm -hmm. this podcast, how I set up my office, even paintings I hang on my living room wall, they're selected... To affect human beings like me and guests in my home in a positive way, um, that doesn't mean I have just like kitsch on my walls, you know. So I have this almost demonic-looking horse that's mm-hmm. galloping, mm-hmm. but that horse. Makes me feel deep feelings mm. and I you know like other people look at the horse They're gonna feel similar feelings that to me is is the validity in taking the care to set up one's environment So that it is beautiful, you know dead house plants are gonna create a certain feeling and Probably not the feeling you want your clients or your guests to create but thriving lush tropical plants Mm. are gonna create a different feeling and it's probably more in line with the feeling that you wanna create. Again, we're advocating for beauty as a thing. We're not defining it. Mm. It's not for me to tell you what paintings you find beautiful or whether you find cacti or like tr- you know tropical plants to be more beautiful. But I am advocating for you to understanding and defining what beauty is for you, just like I'm advocating for you to define mm. you know how you arrive at truth and how you arrive at morality. And I'm making these worthwhile pursuits for mm. you to pursue. So beauty
1: is in the eye of the beholder.
0: But, but, yeah, I, I am making that argument. Mm-hmm. But it's also not haphazard. Mm. So, so if we kind of go back to Robert Persig's definition of quality, mm-hmm. if that which is done with care then has quality, all that's done carelessly lacks quality and probably lacks that aesthetic quality of beauty if, if the thing being done is something like home decoration or painting or sculpture or, or architecture. So that wraps up our defense of truth, morality, and beauty as valid concepts, even though it's now 2024. And hopefully people are still listening to the, to the podcast in 2030, 2040. Let's hope optimistically humanity survives because I've not done too much jet travel. And in <laughs> 2060, you know people are still listening to, to these timeless ideas. But no matter what year you're listening to this in, I hope that we've been able to make a case for why the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of morality and the pursuit of beauty as valid concepts and universal concepts is worthwhile. And I hope that we've been able to at least help you turn away a bit from nihilism and cynicism and not feel like you're crazy because you're pursuing these ideas which have a place in the 21st century and are not just quaintly Victorian concepts. Thank you again for listening. Pascal and I are available for hire through the Morpheus Clinic for Hypnosis in Toronto, Canada, but seeing clients worldwide. If you go to our website at www.morpheusclinic.com, you can read all about us and our work, and you can contact us for a free consultation. As you can hear from these episodes, Pascal and I are kind of practical philosophers in a way. We think about these issues deeply so that you can just hear us speak about these issues
1: in a way that's pertinent to you and to your situation. So if you like what you've heard and you want to keep on listening to some of these good ideas and perspectives, then um, follow us on YouTube at... Morpheus Hypnosis or on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. We will look forward to uh, producing more of these over the coming months. So stay tuned and keep posted.